On Enmeshed, we discuss crimes and situations that may be disturbing for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Enmeshed, the show that reveals some of the most poisonous people come disguised as family. Enmeshed family members are fused together by unhealthy emotions instead of the strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family. Boundaries are blurred and unhealthy relationship patterns are formed. Hello and welcome to Enmeshed, the podcast that explores family relationships and crime. I'm Amanda. And I'm Pam. Today's episode includes a high body count of family in prison and the largest investigation in Ohio history. We're talking about the Piketon Massacre. So let's set the stage a little. 50 miles south of Columbus and 60 miles east of Cincinnati, Ohio, sits Piketon in Pike County. Our story starts on April 21st of 2016, when eight members of the Roden family were systematically shot execution style in four different homes throughout the county. The victims were Dana Roden, 37 years old, and Christopher Roden Sr., 40 years old. Their children, Hannah, 19, Christopher, 16, and Frankie, 20, along with his fiancée, Hannah Gilly, 20, and Christopher Sr.'s cousins, Gary, 38, and Kenneth, 44 years old at the time of his murder. Dana's sister, Bobby Jo Manley, went to one of the Roden houses on the morning of April 22nd, where she found the first two bodies and immediately called the police. There was a second house on the same property that she went into before the police arrived, and there she found two more bodies. Her brother, James Manley, went to check on Dana at her home and discovered the grisly scene of three more bodies. It wasn't until several hours later into the afternoon that the eighth and final victim, one of the adult men, was found shot to death in his home by a cousin. Dollar bills covered his body, which suggested robbery as the motive. I want to break down some of these relationships before we continue. To recap, Dana and Christopher Sr. were divorced with three adult children and one 16-year-old son. Their son, Frankie, and fiance Hannah had a six-month-old baby who was not killed, and Frankie also had a three-year-old from a previous relationship that was also spared. Both children were found at the crime scene. Dana and Christopher's daughter, Hannah, had an infant that was only four days old and was found alive next to her mother's body in bed. That's awful. Hannah's other child, a four-year-old named Sophia, was not present at any of the crime scenes. At the time, it was assumed that she was with her 26-year-old father, Jake Wagner. This is important as we move forward. The rodents weren't the only ones with family close by. The Wagners, Jake's family, were also in the area. His mother and father, Angela and Billy, as well as his older brother, George. We'll get into the Wagners later, but I want to go back to these discoveries in the investigation first. So at the time of the murders, one-time presidential candidate John Kasich was the governor of Ohio with the current governor, Mike DeWine, as the state attorney general. 
Because of the scale of the investigation and sensitive information that only the killer could have known, the full autopsy reports weren't released until a few years later. About 32 total shots had been fired over the course of the massacre, with some of the victims found shot to death in their beds while others had evidence of being beaten before they were murdered. Most of the victims had been shot between one and three times, with one victim shot nine times. That sounds like overkill. That and the whole thing sounds like a coordinated attack, which is exactly what Attorney General DeWine said when he described the murders as a, quote, sophisticated operation. I think the public could read between the lines with that statement. An operation sounds like multiple people are involved, not just one person pulling the trigger. Exactly. As can be expected, the murders rocked Southern Ohio with many people scared and unsure of who could have murdered eight people, and law enforcement even told residents of Pike County to stay in their homes in the early days of the investigation. In such a small county, people had to be terrified to think that they couldn't even trust their own neighbors. That's a great point, and that's why I think the murder-suicide theory that emerged early on really took hold for a little while, because it was more comforting to think that the person that would do such a heinous thing was already dead. But law enforcement shut that down, and people went back to questioning everything. This story had reached, of course, outside of Pike County, with businessman Jeff Ruby of Jeff Ruby Steakhouses briefly offering a $25,000 reward for information before withdrawing it just a few days later, citing, quote, complex criminal developments. The withdrawal came after some information was released about the Roden family. That's right. Investigators released information saying the Rodens were growing marijuana with intent to sell. Yeah, 200 plants is a grow operation, not just personal use. Right. Officials also said they found evidence of a cockfighting ring, so these things together suggested cartel involvement. This was a popular theory because literal tons of marijuana had been seized throughout Pike County over the previous years, suggesting the Mexican cartel had some influence in the county. The giveaway in this case is that those babies were left alive at the crime scenes, so that was quickly discredited too. The investigators and the town were back to square one. Dana's dad, Leonard Manley, brought up that the killers must have been known to the family because Dana had two protective dogs that would have attacked a stranger. And the dogs were found alive. So that must have left the killer or killers alone because you'd think the first thing a killer would do would be to hurt or kill a dog that was attacking them. Right. And there also wasn't evidence of forced injury. So either the killers were let into the homes or they knew how to get in. Since some of the victims were found still in their beds, I'm sure the prevailing theory among law enforcement in those early days was that the killers knew their victims and knew how to gain access to the houses without suspicion. So let's discuss the scale of the investigation. Of course, a case like this would be an all-hands-on-deck situation, and you can see that in the numbers. At least 100 cops were put on a special task force, with 25 sheriffs statewide participating as well as assistance from the FBI and the DEA. By the end of the case, over 251 law enforcement officers would have some involvement in managing the 1,100 tips, 500 interrogations, 700 pieces of evidence, and more than 200 subpoenas. A massive, complicated case. Yep. 
A lot of the evidence was property of the rodents that had been seized by the state, including dozens of cars and farm equipment, as well as the mobile homes that the victims lived in. The task force thought it was necessary to move all this property to their base of command in order to preserve the crime scenes, and this property was eventually released back to surviving family members. This brings us to the fall of 2016, just a few months after the murders, when Sheriff Charles Reeder confirms that this is likely the largest investigation in Ohio history. He also points out that the infants who were found alive at the scenes were in, quote, grave danger, unquote, because the case was still ongoing. Despite this plea to the public for anyone with any information to come forward, little headway was made on the case for two years. No arrests, no information coming out of a scared population in Pike County. And it didn't help that the police made some major missteps along the way. Let's take a quick break before getting into it. Are you planning an event with audio and visual needs but are not sure where to start? Waves Entertainment can help. Waves Entertainment is your premier full-service management company with high-quality custom solutions for any size event. Whether you are planning a large festival or concert, a corporate meeting or wedding, Waves Entertainment will power your event to excellence. Our team of industry professionals work closely with your vision to ensure your audience hears every word, sees every detail, and remembers the experience. Our goal is to ensure your event is customized to fit your needs and provide professional-grade equipment to amplify your message. From live stage production and talent booking to vendor coordination, event staffing, and more, Waves Entertainment is your one-stop shop for the perfect event. Visit our website, wavesentertainment.com, or give us a call at 704-662-2435. That's 704-662-2435. Waves Entertainment, powering your event to excellence. So, if you didn't know the case like you do now, what would you be thinking as a Pike County resident in 2016? I would be suspicious of a potentially pissed off family member. I agree. Before the break, I promised some police incompetence. So, as the case wears on, discrepancies and some corruption starts coming to light. WXIX-TV reported that the warehouse were all that property. The cars, the mobile homes, the farm equipment, you know, the evidence. Exactly. The warehouse where all the evidence was being stored was not being guarded properly. No uniformed guards, no security cameras, and even the main gate was found to be unlocked. How could they expect any kind of evidence to be admissible in court with such shoddy protection? Well, DeWine claimed the report was, quote, ludicrous, and that there wouldn't be any problems going forward with that property being used in a court of law. I'm not sure how or why he felt confident of that, but it seemed to have worked out, as we'll see. I mean, how hard is it to lock a gate? I know. It seems like a really stupid risk to take, and for what? Investigative journalist Jody Barr reported seeing Sheriff Reeder head to the warehouse at 3.30 in the morning when the story broke, and this is after Sheriff Reeder evidently tried to make some kind of deal with Jody Barr about keeping the story quiet. Jody just told him, I don't make deals, and ran the story. 
But that kind of stupidity leads me into the next story of police mishandling evidence in Pike County. Now, this case isn't related to the Rodins, but the events I'm about to describe happened during the Rodin Massacre investigation. Evidently, a gun and some burnt clothing were found at the bottom of a well, and the suspicion was that these items were related to a 2006 cold case of the murders of Piketon residents Curtis Francis and Jennifer Burgett. This was another case of a couple murdered in their bed, execution style, and officials said they were positive more than one person was involved in the murder. Exactly. And according to Curtis's brother, when police sent a camera down into the well, the brother knew that the type of gun that was down there was the kind that had killed Curtis and Jennifer. So the police got the idea to fill the well with water in order to retrieve that evidence. You can imagine how well that went. I'm just speechless. Instead of bringing the evidence to the surface, the force of the water knocked out the bottom of the well, washing the evidence away. Now a steel plate covers the well. Wow, seriously? I am speechless. What were they thinking? You just have to feel bad for the families of Curtis and Jennifer that they're still looking for answers to this day. I wonder how they feel about Sheriff Reeder's prison sentence. Oh yeah, that would have to be something of a comfort. So not only did the sheriff attempt to bury an unflattering story, it turns out that he'd stolen $14,000 in seized drug money from evidence envelopes and borrowed $6,000 from employees to fund his gambling habit. He was eventually indicted on 18 charges, including racketeering. He pleaded guilty to some evidence tampering and theft as well. He's being sued by the county for something like $128,000. In addition to this blatant criminality, the police started barking up the wrong tree, which took valuable time away from the investigation. They had turned their attention to Dana's brother, James Manley, who lived close by. To be fair, he did fail a polygraph, but there's a reason they're not usually admissible in court anyway. Let's put a pin in this for later. Boot prints that matched boots James owned, the brand and the size, were found at the crime scene. Cops put a GPS tracker on James's car, but he removed it, which had to have made him look even more suspicious. So to be fair to the police, we've got a family member that lives close by who the dogs would have known and would have known how to get into the house, and his boot prints are found at the scene. And he blows the polygraph, and he tries to evade the police. Okay, sure. But given some information we're about to head into, it seems a little reckless to me to head down the James path. I think it's time we talk about the Wagners. This is some classic enmeshment here. You already introduced them, mom and dad, Angela and Billy, and sons, George and Jake. You'll remember, too, that Jake had a four-year-old daughter with Hannah, and Hannah also had just given birth four days before the murders, which was not Jake's baby. You've got it. Prosecutors would later describe the Wagners as very clannish and tight-knit. Evidently, they did everything together, including possibly plot the murder of eight people. So on November 13th, 2018, that's almost two and a half years after the murders, police arrested Angela, Billy, George, and Jake, as well as Billy's mother, Frederica Wagner, for obstruction of justice and perjury, 
and Angela's mother, Rita Newcomb, for forging custody documents and perjury. Not long after the murders, the family had sold off all their property and belongings to move to Alaska under the guise of keeping Sophia out of the limelight. Before long, they'd run out of money and made their way back to Ohio. As I understand it, Jake had married a woman from his church in Alaska, who later discovered the danger she had gotten herself into. Not much has been heard from her since, as the Wagners passed her in Alaska, accused her of slander. So she never came to Ohio? I don't believe so, no. Well, she seemed to have dodged a bullet there. When they came back, the town was not happy to see them. They donated some money to Jake early in the investigation out of sympathy. You know, the mother of his child had just been murdered. But then the town learned the Wagners were pretty well off and were angry that he'd taken advantage of the situation. So when they got back, police executed a raid on the Wagner property and found a silencer at the bottom of a well. That's when the arrests happened. The brothers were arrested together at a traffic stop. Angela was arrested at her house in Scioto County, which is south of Pike, and Billy was arrested in Lexington, Kentucky. So let's go back to the very beginning. A 13-year-old Hannah Roden and 19-year-old Jake Wagner begin their relationship, and Hannah has their baby Sophia at only 15 years old. She breaks things off with Jake, and he's really upset by it. Yeah, they were going to get married, and then she called it off. Right, so then a nasty custody battle ensued over Sophia. Hannah had evidently told a friend on Facebook Messenger that the Wagners would have to kill her before she'd give up custody of Sophia. So a few months before the murders, the family members started compiling the gear they'd need, like silencers, guns, and ammo. They'd even bought devices that collect spent shell casings to totally cover their tracks. They spied on the rodents and started forging documents to give Jake custody of Sophia. That's where Rita Newcomb, Angela's mom, comes in. She was the one to sign Hannah and Dana's names on the documents. These documents were proved to have been printed out three weeks before the murders. And what about the boots, Amanda? Authorities found receipts for James Manley's type of boots on the Wagner property. Evidently, they'd driven two hours to find a Walmart that carried the right pair in size in order to frame him. In addition to all the physical evidence, law enforcement's case was made airtight when Angela was recorded on the jailhouse phone telling Rita not to testify. With so much evidence of premeditation and such a horrifying crime, the Wagners were facing the death penalty. In a surprise move in April of 2021, Jake Wagner pleaded guilty to all 23 charges. His full cooperation ensured the death penalty was off the table for the rest of the family and answered some questions for law enforcement as well as the remaining Roden family. In September, Angela pleaded guilty to her part in the murders as well. As part of both plea deals, she and Jake both have agreed to testify against Billy and George. As of December 2021, a judge ruled that the death penalty is still possible for Jake's brother George. George and Billy's cases have not yet made it to trial. Charges were dropped for matriarchs Frederica Wagner and Rita Newcomb. 
While Jake has largely taken responsibility for the eight murders, it's believed that Angela was the mastermind of the massacre. Following her guilty plea, Attorney General David Yost said, quote, Our society reveres mothers for taking care of their children and teaching them to do the right thing, even when it's hard. But by actively plotting the murder of an entire family and encouraging her kids to carry out the violence, Angela Wagner objectively failed in her responsibilities, end quote. Powerful words. Indeed. Thank you for listening. All of our sources are in today's show notes, as well as those important resources. You can find us at enmeshed underscore true crime podcast on Instagram or enmeshed true crime podcast on Facebook and let us know what you think. You can also get a behind the scenes look at the show and chat with us about any of the cases you've heard here or share case suggestions. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to keep up with Enmeshed, and join us every Monday for fresh takes on stale relationships. Enmeshed is an Oh No production. Oh no!